0: is Battlegrounds.
1: On today's episode of Battlegrounds, our focus is on the United Kingdom and its armed forces. Our guest is General Sir Nick Carter, an accomplished strategic leader with over 45 years of military experience. General Carter served as the United Kingdom's Chief of the Defense Staff from 2018 to 2021. In this position, Carter led the British Armed Forces as the most senior uniformed military advisor to the British Prime Minister. As Chief of the Defense Staff, General Carter oversaw the British Army's response to the Syrian Civil War, the COVID-19 pandemic, and the Taliban takeover of Afghanistan. General Carter joined the British Army at age 18, as part of the Royal Green Jackets Infantry Regiment. He served in West Germany during the end of the Cold War, Northern Ireland during the Troubles, and in Bosnia and Kosovo during NATO peacekeeping operations. Carter served multiple tours in Afghanistan between 2002 and 2013 and commanded British forces in Basra, Iraq in 2004. He helped design the Provincial Reconstruction Teams in Afghanistan, which were humanitarian reconstruction and growth projects that aimed to establish stability and security. During the 2009 surge of troops in Afghanistan, General Carter commanded 55,000 NATO troops. In 2013, Carter became deputy commander of the International Security Assistance Force, ISAF. ISAF was a UN-mandated NATO mission to train Afghan national security forces to rebuild crucial government institutions, provide security in Afghanistan, and ensure that it would never again serve as a safe haven for terrorists. We welcome General Carter today to discuss his experiences in the British military, the war in Ukraine, the implications of the US and coalition withdrawal from Afghanistan, and the future of warfare.
0: General Sir Nick Carter, welcome to Battlegrounds. It's so great to see you. It's great to
2: be with you, H.R. Thank well, you. you know,
0: I mean, since we've retired, the world's gone to hell. So, you know, General Nick, I mean, I, I, I want, I'd I, love to talk with you, uh, you really first about, uh, you know, ab- about geostrategic dynamics. But first I want to thank you for your leadership over the years. It was a real privilege to serve alongside you in places like Afghanistan, uh, you know, and to visit you and your and and your in your uh, division at York. I just got, we have a lot of fond memories of of your uh, leadership and service over the years.
2: No, well, thank you, and um, you know, I've followed your career with great interest and learned a lot from you during the course of the process. Um, and I think the partnership that we've struck up in various dusty places has been a very productive partnership.
0: It has, and, and you know, of course, I know it's been heartbreaking for you to see some of the developments uh, in, in recent years and, and months, and, and we'll talk about Afghanistan, we served together there Uh, But I'd like to first just talk to you about kind of the general geostrategic dynamics as you see them. You know, the first major war in Europe since World War II is is ongoing. Uh, There's an emerging geostrategic competition with two revanchist powers on the Eurasian landmass. Uh, Some are saying that there's the emergence of what we might call an axis of authoritarians, including Russia and China, but also Iran, who's in the game now. Uh, Other countries around the world seem to be sizing up that competition and picking sides. And and, um, and so I, I just like to ask you, how do you understand the world today?
2: Yes, I mean, I think, I think we've returned to a, <clears throat> an era that is probably remis, reminiscent of the 1930s in terms of the level of disorder that we see and the level of instability. And I think I put that down to three factors. I mean, you've mentioned this global competition between great powers, and we're up against now some revisionist powers with Russia being the acute threat and of course China being in a sense the chronic challenge. And of course, they have got an axis of clients around them who share their views on what the world order should look like. And of course, I think also we've seen developments in US foreign policy over the course of the last eight years or so. And that's had a bearing, I think, on how that competition is playing out. And I think the world is breaking down now, in in a sense, into a framework where you've got three broad groupings of countries. You've got those who are pro-West, those that we've been talking about who are clearly anti-West. And then you've got a lot of... um, undecided or non-aligned who, who are sitting there, I think, waiting to be influenced. And of course, those are countries a bit like India, Indonesia, um, maybe Malaysia, perhaps even Mexico, Brazil, South Africa. And these are countries that are gonna have a large amount of um, the global humanity living within them. Uh, and how they play into this debate, I think is interesting. And then, of course, I think the second reason is, is that, you know, the the multilateral system that you and I have grown up in, that rules-based order that the United States was so instrumental in constructing after the 1945 period, that is now arguably no longer being respected and is arguably perhaps not fit for purpose. So I think we're between orders. And then when you then add on the third factor, which is the way in which the character of warfare and politics is evolving so rapidly because of technological change and the democratization of of information, um, you've got a cocktail of ingredients that lead to the disorder that we're now seeing.
0: Well, I'd like to talk about each of those. I think it's interesting, these three groups, of course, there's, there's a lot of variation within each of these groups, but, but the, you know, the competitions that are playing out, uh, really play out among these three groups. And I'd like to get your assessment of what you think the relative strengths and weaknesses are of, of these three groupings, the, the authoritarians you know, the West are like-minded free market systems and free and open societies. And then, and where the competition between the two is largely playing out, uh, whether it's across, you know, what Mackinder you know, called the shatter zones uh, of, uh, of, of the Middle East and, and Africa, or here in, in the Western hemisphere. But when we look at these, these authoritarians, you, you called it an acute threat with Russia and a chronic one with China, uh, how, how do you assess their trajectory and, and the relative strengths and weaknesses?
2: I mean, I think if you look for the slightly longer term, I mean, Russia is undoubtedly a declining power, um, not least because of demography, but also I think because where its money comes from, which essentially is about fossil fuels, that is something that's not going to endure forever. Um, so when you see a population shrinking like the population is shrinking in Russia, um, I think, you know, there are obvious longer term vulnerabilities there. But the next 10 years are going to be difficult. We can talk in a minute about how the war in Ukraine might play out. But however it plays out, Russia is going to be a factor in that equation. And of course, China is also confronted with some headwinds. Then when you think the working age population in China is going to decline by 10% in the next 10 years and by 30% over the next 30 to 40 years, you can't change demography. You know, unless you're prepared to open your doors to immigration. And we all know that China's unlikely to do that. Um, it's somewhat xenophobic perhaps in its approach. They've also got some difficult headwinds to cope with. And of course, they've got a, a, a middle class that wants to be um, wealthy and wants to be you know, productive and everything that goes with it. And that's gonna be quite a challenging beast to keep going given that demography and how that demography is going to change. Um, but you know, we should be in no doubt that over the course of the next 10 to 15 years, um, China and what China is doing with its technology and much of what President Xi Jinping is saying publicly about where he wants China to be placed in the next decade means that there are some serious questions that we need to think about how we're going to answer.
0: Certainly, I think it's a cause for concern. I'm thinking of his recent four speeches at the two sessions in which he seemed to be preparing the Chinese people for war. and, and uh, I think when you read more and more of these these primary documents, it's a, it's a cause for concern. It does seem to me, to uh, Sir Nick, that you know that that there is this perception on the part of these authoritarian regimes that we are weak. We being, you know, our 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 open democratic societies and uh, our free market economic systems. Uh, I think the declaration, the joint declaration that Xi Jinping and and Putin made right before the Beijing Olympics, is telling. And, and that really the message was, hey, you know you're over. But I think Putin certainly was in for a surprise. You know, I think the, at least the record is mixed. I mean, we have, we have some, what appear to be some cracks uh, with, I think, you know, President Macron's visit to China may not have been the right message uh, at this time. Uh, but the, 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 the NATO alliance has not only held together, but has expanded. Uh, you went through Brexit, but, but, I, think, but I think European uh, unity on the issue of Ukraine, and now the waking up, even on, on the part of Germany, uh, for the, the need to compete with Russia and to take more responsibility for their defense, to to do what Donald Trump was asking them to do actually during his presidency, to share more of the of the burden and don't give coercive power over your economy to to Russia. And I think the transatlantic you know relationship and alliance looks pretty strong to me. But you know, of course, it's never going to be perfect. Um, but we do have kind of a new conscience in Europe to a certain extent in Eastern Europe, centered maybe on Poland and. I think the Scandinavian countries are quite strong. What, what's your overall assessment of us, us being the West, and we could obviously talk about the relationship with Japan as well and others.
2: I mean, I think that um, as you inferred, I mean, Putin will have been surprised as I suspect will Xi Jinping by the sense of Western cohesion that emerged um, during the course of that invasion last February. Um, and I remember you know, sitting around our National Security Council table um, in the UK the previous year. and whilst we were mentally wargaming what might play out in Ukraine, I don't think anybody around that table would have imagined that we'd have been able to do the sort of actions that have followed in March, only six months later, when he invaded Ukraine, you know expelling Russia from the Swift system banking system. None of us, I think, would have imagined we'd have ever have gone as far as that. and of course we've gone even further in terms of those financial sanctions. So I think they will have been surprised by that. And of course, we now see that China is doing what it can to try and reduce its vulnerability to those sorts of um, approaches that we've done in economic terms. But I think what of course they miss is that whilst you know the froth at the top of our politics is populist and looks like we're becoming decadent and we're missing the point. The reality is that democracies like ours and particularly the United States of America have this infinite ability to be able to reinvent itself. And that's what the United States has always done. Um, and you know, we as your allies also feel that reinvention every time it occurs. And I think in reinventing, you know, that is our great strength and our ability to be able to counter authoritarian regimes that can't reinvent themselves. They are essentially fragile. Um, Putin's regime is fragile, as is Xi Jinping's because it's centralized. And if you have a centralized relationship with your population, like they both do, that leads to vulnerabilities and it leads to fragility. And we shouldn't lose sight of that. And of course, the thing that bothers both of those gentlemen are the prospects of color revolutions, like we saw playing out as the Soviet empire came to a conclusion.
0: And they, they mentioned it explicitly in their joint statement just recently as well. There'll be no color revolutions, we're against those. And you know, I, I'm thinking of what Wang An said, He's, who was a, a great American citizen, Chinese immigrant to the United States and, and, and uh, founded Wang Computers. And he, he basically said that you know democracies, we, we have our problems, but what we have is we have mechanisms for self-correction short of revolution. We have a say in how we're governed. And so I guess uh, to your point, we look ugly you know, from the, from the, from the outside. Uh, but I do think that we're more resilient than maybe our adversaries give us credit for. And of course, Russia looked pretty darn strong, you know, on parade, you know, their military did. And, and it didn't, they didn't actually fight very well in, in February of, of last year. And, and it's revealed, you know, really deficiencies in their military. Um, of course, the reinvasion of Ukraine has been a galvanizing moment. We're talking about the, the West, but, uh, but really the support for the Ukrainians uh, and the degree to which countries are willing to condemn uh the you know the the invasion and uh, and and condemn russia's aggression has varied across that third grouping of countries you discussed uh, I'm thinking of India and the emirates and others who we thought we might have we might have uh, you know we might have counted on how how do you see that competition playing out the competition between the the authoritarian revisionist powers and and you know and and the west broadly playing out in the you know, some people call it the global south, but it's much more than that. It involves the most populous country on earth, India, the largest democracy on earth.
2: Yes, I, I mean, I think, I think we should um, look at ourselves quite closely in the mirror on this particular issue. Um, I mean, I travel quite widely in my new life and I go to countries in Africa and also in South Asia. And people will say to me, what's the difference between what Mr. Putin is doing in Ukraine and what you did in 2003 in Iraq? And of course, superficially, you can see why they would ask that question. And of course, none of them are necessarily prepared to listen hard to the arguments that we might put across as to why Iraq actually is rather different to what took place in Ukraine. And then I think if you also look at the way that we probably behaved during COVID, where we made very sure that we'd inoculated our population three or four times over before we perhaps lent into, you know, what those countries might have needed in terms of vaccinations and everything associated with it, you can see why there's a possibly a slightly cynical agenda, a slightly cynical view as to our behavior. And I think we therefore need to be reflecting on that. And I think we need to remind ourselves what Western soft power was all about. And we need to remind ourselves that the values that we espouse and the soft power that flows from those values needs to be given to these countries in a way that genuinely resonates. Um, And we need to think about our narrative. And until we get that right, um, we are going to have, I think, not necessarily the strongest hand to play in relation to the relationships we need to have with those sorts of countries. Uh, And that requires a great deal of thought. And I think we underestimate um, the power of our soft power and how that soft power should be applied globally to achieve that effect. And that's what we've got to go back and think hard about, I would suggest.
0: And I think maybe our our greatest assets in that connection are Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin. I mean, with uh, obviously Vladimir Putin you're really perpetuating these serial episodes of of mass homicide in the Syrian Civil War and you know trying to pose both as arsonist and firemen in the region, uh, China's predatory lending practices, for example, and and, uh, and creation of servile relationships with corrupt governments. And I think the more we can pull the curtain back on that and provide you know provide an alternative, I think, uh, to you know to these uh, to these various forms of, of aggression uh, is, is important. Um, and, and I think we just have not done a good job, as you mentioned, in engaging others and 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 explaining, you know, really how you know this ideally should not be a choice between you know Washington and Beijing. It should be a choice between sovereignty and, and servitude. Uh, with us obviously being on the side of sovereignty, you know, in in, in in that choice, I'd like to ask you, you know, beyond soft power, how about some good old fashioned hard power, right? You know, the the um, you know, the, the invasion uh, reinvasion of, of of Ukraine obviously was not deterred. Uh, I think that the preferred means of deterrence had been the threat of sanctions, which turned out to be inadequate. There were a number of actions taken in the lead up to the invasion, pulling both of our our, our fleets out of the, out of the Black Sea, um, assuring putin uh, about everything we weren't going to do uh, to support uh, to support the Ukrainians. Uh, and, and it failed I think because Putin perceived weakness. But could you really uh, talk about what you think we should have learned from the reinvasion in terms of what is necessary for deterrence to be effective? It's never been foolproof, but as we look at really trying to restore, playing a role at least in restoring peace and preventing further conflict, what should we take away from Ukraine that we can apply more broadly?
2: Um, I mean, I
0: absolutely agree with you that soft power needs to be underpinned by hard power. And of
2: course, hard power ultimately is the essence of deterrence, as we both know. Um, I think that um, going back to the point I made at the beginning about the character of warfare evolving um, and what has happened during the course of that is that that has blurred the distinctions between peace and war, between state and non-state, between foreign and domestic policy, even between virtual and reality. And that has given regimes like Mr. Putin's regime and for that matter, the Chinese regime, the opportunity to use new tools, tactics, and techniques to undermine our way of life by exploiting those gray areas that have come as a consequence of that blurring and those distinctions. And of course, what that means is that um, deterrence becomes harder um, because if you are engaged in computer network exploitation within the cyber domain, how do you actually deter without actually competing? The answer is that modern deterrence, I think, increasingly requires countries to compete, you can't just sit back on your laurels as it were like this and say, I've got this great force that if you do that, I'll smack you. Because actually they ignore that, because they've got other ways of undermining our way of life and making the sort of mischief that they're making. And we've seen that repeatedly over the course of the last fifteen years, with you know, American elections being undermined, probably the Brexit campaign being supported, and so on and so forth. The
0: anti fracking movement in Europe. You know, so to, to, to perpetuate Absolutely. dependency on Russian hydrocarbons.
2: So I think we need to, we need to think a little differently about deterrence and, and the fact that deterrence actually requires us to compete. Now that's not easy for Western democracies and it's not easy for a Western NATO alliance, which has a series of articles and processes that were designed for a different era. You know, the, the articles in the NATO treaty, which say an attack on one is an attack on us all. You've got to nowadays work out what an attack is. What is an attack? And that is very difficult to do. So I think, you know, the time is right for some serious academic study, I would suggest, HR, uh, <laughs> that, that people like us probably need to do to work out how you play into a much more demanding strategic context and provide that sense of modern deterrence, which will mean that people like Xi Jinping and Putin understand that they cannot get away with it.
0: Right. You know that the the, uh, the most recent NATO strategic assessment made made some of these points, and I think you're. Right. I mean, as the historian, Conrad Crane has said, there are two ways to fight: asymmetrically and stupidly. Right. And you hope your enemy picks stupidly, like in the 1991 Gulf War, for example. Uh, but they're unlikely to do so, and I think that's a lesson of 9/11 as well. You know. So, so I, what are your prescriptions? I know that you've done quite a bit of work in innovating uh, in, in the defense space, uh, especially when you're chief of the defense staff and, and actually chief of the army when, when you actually formed a brigade, a brigade that was aimed at really competing more effectively in the information space, for example. Uh, and you exercised that brigade to a certain extent during COVID mm-hmm. and I think probably learned some lessons from that. But what do you, what do you think are the, are the concrete adaptations uh, that, that countries can take to integrate all, all elements of national power To compete against this kind of what some people call hybrid warfare or aggression that operates below the threshold of what might elicit a military response.
2: I mean, I think the key word you use there is this word integration. Um, And certainly from a military perspective, I, I mean, I think the acme of modern military skill is the ability to be able to integrate across the traditional domains of land, air, and maritime, but also space and cyber and bring the information piece into it as well. And if you can do that, then not only will you be able to bring capability to bear at any point in time, you'll be able to do it throughout the levels of command, from the strategic through the operational, down to the tactical, and vice versa, versa. And that I think you know takes what you and I would have described as jointery to another level. And I think that's probably the acme of military skill now. But the challenge for it, of course, is to make it happen, not only requires um, human beings who are very skilled and able to be comfortable with decentralization and the chaos that comes with decentralization. It also requires technology to be in the right place. And I think we all know that the future is going to be about information centric technologies, but picking the right combination of those technologies is immensely challenging. And we're not good at predicting the future. Um, our procurement processes are not very effective at dealing with the technology and the pace of that technological change. But I think there's some interesting lessons that are coming out of Ukraine. I mean, it's always dangerous to learn lessons a year into a into a war or a campaign. But I do think the way in which the Ukrainians are exploiting and managing data is an extremely good example of what the future probably portends over the next five to 10 years.
0: Right. Yeah, I think also from Ukraine, you can learn the lesson that the new doesn't completely replace the old, that often... I mean, al- almost always they've had they have to be combined, and you see quite a bit of of kind of just blunt use of force, right? Massive, you know, uh, artillery uh, use of ar- use of use of artillery to the extent that we're almost running out of it. You know, um, the importance of protected mobility and mobile protected firepower and tiered and layered air defense and long-range precision strike, and now of course with a you know probably a, a renewed Ukrainian offensive engineering capabilities, you know, integrated into maneuver formations. And this is what we understand and have understood across our career as combined arms, air ground operations, now augmented quite heavily with electronic warfare, drones, uh, operations in cyberspace in the information domain. What what do you think that, that the experience in Ukraine portends for future war? And what would your priorities be today as chief of the defense staff um, or as uh, as uh, Secretary of Defense here in the United States to, to really make sure that forces are prepared to deter conflict, uh, but if necessary to fight and win in future war.
2: I mean, I think, you know, the <clears throat> one thing that we've reminded ourselves about repeatedly over the course of the last year or so looking into Ukraine is the nature of war doesn't change. It is essentially a, a political interaction between human beings. It's visceral, it's violent, and it's bloody. And it's very, very challenging in terms of the friction that it brings with it. Um, And I think we've been repeatedly reminded of that throughout the the last year or so. Um, But the character of warfare is evolving. And I think the extent to which the Ukrainians are innovating, the extent to which they've um, brought together the whole enterprise of their society in order to be able to fight for their existence has been really rather remarkable and most impressive to see. And of course, they've used lots of things that are essentially available in your normal daily life whether that's 3D printing in back rooms that are creating small drones that are then brought forward by a girl on a bicycle to, you know, the soldier in the frontline trench or whatever it might be. They are, I think, demonstrating the level of ingenuity that comes when you're faced by an existential challenge in the way that they obviously are. So I think there's some good lessons there. But I think, going back to my point about data, I think how they have exploited data, the way in which they have used commercial satellites provided by An American uh, in order to be able to draw really quite interesting and real time information from that battlefield, then to be able to translate that information into intelligence that can inform a targeting process in real time, then to apply uber technologies to the way in which they've maneuvered their artillery pieces around that battlefield in order to be able to strike high value targets and be selective about it, I think is an indication of what our armed forces in the future again have to be able to do. Now, the point I made a moment ago about our rather clunky procurement processes, these are not going to enable that. I mean, what Ukraine has demonstrated, because it's had to, is you've got to be very agile in the way that you develop these things. You know, they, it is a laboratory in which they are experimenting. And our militaries need to find a way of getting over the processes that we currently have in order to be able to embrace the level of technological experimentation and development that they're showing on the
0: ground. Yeah and with a sense of urgency, right? And, you know, of course, we we uh, served, uh, both of us in, in Germany during the Cold War and and then saw the changes in, in European security that occurred after the end of the Cold War through the 1990s. Uh, but then in the 2000s, it seemed as if we failed to adapt to what was a, a growing and more discernible threat, you know, from a, a resurgent Russia or, or a Russia that had designs to, to threaten uh, European security. We continued, um, yeah, you know, to to reduce defense budgets, uh, European nations in particular, and I know that it was difficult for you to see the severe reductions in the British army, for example. I mean, Germany, I think, for all intents and purposes, you know, unilaterally disarmed. I mean, uh, you know, the the Bundeswehr that we knew is gone. You know, and uh, and now there seems to be a recognition that that has to be reversed. What what are what are your you know, what are your predictions about about follow through on that on the ability to to not only to modernize more rapidly and have a sense of urgency about, as you're mentioning, but also maybe to to increase the capacity of the armed forces, under the recognition that they're inadequate, that it turned out to be inadequate for deterrence, uh, and maybe needed in the future. And of course, we hope not, uh, but but it does take really forces that have sufficient capability and capacity can operate for ample scale and duration uh, to win and to demonstrate that to to a potential adversary. So. They don't have the temerity uh, for aggression.
2: I mean, I think you know it, is, it will be quite challenging, uh, notwithstanding the sort of the moment of the Ukraine war, to reverse decades of decline. You know, it, the peace dividend has been spent many times over already by European countries and, to a degree, United States as well. And somehow one has to reverse that. And I think the thing that is most worrying is the extent to which European militaries are hollow, um, because. It's not the stuff you can necessarily see on display, which matters, Leopard 2 tanks, or attack helicopters, whatever it might be. It's what you've got in your ammunition bunkers. It's what you've got in your locker of precision uh, missiles and weapon systems. It's all of that stuff that you can't- Repair parts and- Exactly, and and, and that, of course, we've seen in in spades in terms of from Russia's perspective as well. I mean, they were much more hollow than any of us might've imagined. But how you reverse that hollowness and how you therefore give yourself the basic resilience to be genuinely ready, that is gonna take a very long time to change, not least because our defense industries are not tooled to be able to do this. And I was reading an article in the London Daily Telegraph uh, last week about the US Army Scranton um, ammunition factory, which makes 155 ammunition. Mm -hmm. And at maximum capacity at the moment, they can turn out 11,000 shells a month well, the reality of course is that the Ukrainians are going through 7,000 7, shells a week. Well, you know, don't turn to Europe because our industry is certainly not gonna be able to backfill any of that. And it's those sorts of things which are, are dull and there aren't many votes in it, which are, are gonna have to be addressed if we are serious about providing the sort of hard power deterrence, which is gonna be necessary against a, a Russia that's not going away anytime soon.
0: Right, and to generate the will to make those investments. and, and um I think it's obviously the lead time, as you're mentioning, is machine tools for this particular plant. And but then there's supply chain complications as, as well. And uh, well, I, I hope <laughs> I hope that we do generate the will, but it, it remains to be to be seen uh, in the US. As you know, there are more investments now in the defense industrial base, but they're inadequate in terms of in terms of the scale. And once you give up, you know, capacity, uh, it's very tar- it's very difficult to build it back. You know, I, I, off, you know, you mentioned already that, that war really is a contest of wills, and I, and I when I when I look at, at really the the stain of twenty twenty one of August twenty twenty one and and the um, you know the humiliating withdrawal from Kabul, uh, I see that as as mainly a failure of will. You know, I, we uh, we heard for many years, oh, there's no military solution to Afghanistan, but you know the Taliban came up with one, and and they came up with one in large measure because I think we we engaged in self-defeat uh, based on self-delusion in a number of areas. You know, the, the Taliban were not terrorists. You know, there's a bold line between them and the Haqqani Network and Al-Qaeda and so forth, that the Taliban was really Taliban 2.0, you know, the, uh, that they would be more benign and, and, and respectful of, uh, of human rights and women's rights in, in, in particular, or that the Taliban, uh, you know, was, was, you know, uh, was going to, uh, to somehow share power you know, and, and I think this all to me at the time seemed like a pipe dream, uh, but when we prioritized withdrawal over the achievement of an aim consistent with what brought us into that war to begin with back all the way back in 2001, um, I, I think that that's when the writing was on the wall for what we saw as the humiliation. But I just like to ask you if, if, you know, if deterrence really is capability times will, is our will zero? Or can we rekindle our will, and then and then also um, reconstitute it? Uh, and, then, and what's your view of, of that? You know that difficult uh, what, what we witnessed and the Afghan people experienced um, in terms of the the you know the, the withdrawal and surrender. I, I would say <laughs> surrender and withdrawal from Afghanistan.
2: Yeah, I mean, I it was an extraordinarily painful moment, and I was um, I was the the, the the CDS at the time, so the equivalent oh, of the chairman, yeah. sitting over the top of it. Um, and I had spent you know, about three years of my life in the country and many other years of my life devoted to the country. So for me, it was a, a very personally painful period to see that happen. And I very much agree with you. I mean, I think it, it indicated a failure of political will. And of course, if you put that on top of the way that we performed from 2014 onwards in relation to Putin's invasion of Crimea, small wonder that um, he thought he could get away with what he's doing in Ukraine now. Um, because it does demonstrate that extent to which you're um, prepared to put up for what you really believe in. Now, the, it, it, it's a nonetheless a very complex question, isn't it, you know, how the Afghan campaign unfolded? And I think the, you know, the strategy that uh, you developed when you were national security advisor was a sustainable strategy. And I think if that had been seen through, I think it could have been done so at a level which was not only sustainable in terms of human lives, but also sustainable in terms of the economics of it. Um, And it's a a sadness that it didn't happen. But I think you mentioned 2001, and of course the reality of all of this is that we know that wars ultimately end in a conversation. And the trick is to make sure that you have an inclusive conversation in order to be able to create an inclusive political solution at the end of that conversation. And I think that we thought probably rather hubristically uh, back in 2001, that we had defeated the enemy, job done. Um, And indeed you'll recall that um, Donald Rumsfeld actually wanted us to leave pretty quickly thereafter.
0: I mean, a lot of people remember the mission accomplished speech that President Bush gave, but forget that Secretary Rumsfeld was making a very similar speech in Afghanistan that same day saying, hey, we're out, we're out of here.
2: And of course, you know, maybe that would have been the right thing to do, looking back on it. But if you are going to stay and you are essentially going to get involved in nation build, which is of course what it became, then you need to understand the local politics very comprehensively and you need to be very strategically patient in terms of how you're going to develop the country that you're trying to build. Because going back to when we were talking about democracies, the reality of democracies is they're based upon sound and solid institutions. And when you look at Afghanistan, you know, we invested a lot of money in trying to build an Afghan army as a key institution, but we didn't invest much effort in building a civil service or in the other institutions that we take for granted in countries like yours and mine. So I think you have to look at the whole campaign over a 20 year period to really understand what went wrong in 2021. Um, and whether there was any way back, I don't know, but I do believe that the sort of things that you were talking about doing in 2017 were probably the, the things that might've made a difference.
0: And even when we put those in place, I wonder if they were too late. I mean, I think that you know this short-term approach to what was a long-term problem in Afghanistan actually lengthened the war and made, and made it more costly. And, and I hope that we're just not learning the exact diametrically, you know, or the uh, the opposite lessons, the wrong lessons from from the war, which is like, hey, we'll just never have to do that again. And it just re- it reminds me of the army I came into after Vietnam, when the officers with whom I interacted as a cadet at West Point never spoke of Vietnam. Uh, we were just never going to have to do that again. That being a counterinsurgency, uh, and of course uh that the latter parts of our career were spent fighting. Yeah, I,
2: I remember my, my father telling me that um, when he went through the staff college at Camberley as a major um, in the nineteen early 1960s, World War I was not discussed. You didn't talk about it. It was a disaster. Now, we all know, having studied World War One since then, that, of course, there were some amazingly positive lessons to be learned from that experience, not least the 100-day campaign at the end of World War One. So I absolutely agree with you. I mean, that there is a there is a risk that we shelve these things, and we don't learn and then importantly apply the lessons looking forwards. And whilst, you know, I think our politicians um, wouldn't want to get involved in an intervention like Iraq or Afghanistan again, the reality is that other countries are going to be involved in similar problems to the ones that we encountered in Afghanistan. And you know, when you go to many African nations now, they will need advice on how to deal with Islamic insurgencies and Islamic extremism and the terrorism associated with it and the lessons that we have learned from our experience in Afghanistan will be useful to them to be applied in order to try and deal with their problems.
0: Absolutely. And I, I think that we have to avoid this false dilemma that you know, well, Afghanistan wasn't Denmark. Yeah. So there was, there was a failure. It didn't need to be Denmark. And, and I think nation building is a fool's errand, especially if you try to nation build in your own image. But the con- consolidation of gains, as you know, has never been an optional phase you know, in, 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 uh, in war unless it's a raid. Um, but I'd like to I'd like to talk with you more about the writing that you're doing and the thinking that you're doing about about future war. Uh, what are you What are you doing these days? And and how are you organizing your thoughts about what you'd like to write and and explain to readers and and audiences a, a, about uh, about future armed conflict and its relation to politics, for example? Mm.
2: Yes, and uh, and, uh, and you know I'm absolutely thrilled to be with you here at Stanford. And um, indeed, the directors just asked me if I'll do another year, so I'm really delighted about that Um, because, you know, what what better place to be able to get your thinking in order and what better basis of talent to draw upon to develop that thinking in the right direction. And for me, I think what I want to study, perhaps less about the technology of future war. A lot of people have written about artificial intelligence and drones and robots and all this sort of good stuff. What I'm much more interested in is the political dimension of warfare. Um, And what I would propose to do, I think, is to is to write a book probably in two parts, a part where I would draw upon my 20 years experience in Afghanistan, and then a part where I would draw on probably the last 10 years of my military career, where as a chief of staff, and then ultimately as the chief of the defense staff, one was engaged in the um, challenge of modern deterrence and the threat that was coming from Russia particularly, and the challenge that was coming from China, and how one approaches that sense of um, deterrence in the context of political warfare and everything that that stands for, and how one then sought, in a sense, to try and get the armed forces to understand its role in a subordinate capacity to all of the instruments of statecraft that are necessary to prevail in those circumstances. On the Afghan thing, I mean, I, um, I, I mean I, in, in many ways, it's probably quite trite to say it, but I think that the Klaus dictum that um, war is an extension of politics is slightly reversed in Afghanistan, and probably in counterinsurgencies more generally where actually what you're really doing is armed politics. And ironically, in a way, the politics is an extension of the war. And what you have to do, I think, is to understand how you can therefore use tools, often short of kinetic, um, lethal tools, in order to be able to have the sorts of conversations that probably lead to stability, and how that all plays through. And much of what we achieved in Southern Afghanistan from 2010 onwards, was an essential political campaign rather more than a military campaign. Um, And and I think that angle is something that is, will be useful to countries that are struggling with that sort of insurgency at the moment.
0: I think that's a really important insight. I mean, I think what was was necessary in Afghanistan was to harden Afghanistan against the regenerative capacity of the Taliban, which lied mainly across the border in in Pakistan. Uh, And to do that, you had to strengthen government institutions and functions enough to. Uh, to to be able to withstand it. And of course, I think when we were talking to the Taliban in Doha, we maybe ought to be, we should have been talking to Afghans and uh, and forcing Afghans to talk to one another, uh, to become stakeholders in in strength of institutions rather than many of them who would become stakeholders of state weakness uh, as they pursued their own kind of particularistic agendas. But
2: But you know that that old Afghan joke, Um, God came to Afghanistan several hundred years ago and saw the nature of the problem. And he said to them, don't do anything to I come back. <laughs> and of course, that is always the challenge. Getting, yeah. I, I found in my many years of, in Afghanistan, it was trying to get the Afghans to own the problem. Yeah. Um, and it was very difficult sometimes because I think they thought that, you know, you Westerners knew the answer to all these problems, but actually it was their answers that we really needed.
0: Well, you know, what's, what's sad for me is, uh, I, I would have been fine with us just leaving, but I, I, I was really disconcerted about the degree to which we seem to side with the Taliban against the Afghan government on our way out, you know, delivering blow after blow, like not having the Afghans with us during negotiations, forcing them to release, you know, 5,000 and then 2,000 more prisoners, withdrawing our air and intelligence support, not actively targeting the Taliban, removing our contractor support. I mean, um, it seemed as if, you know, we, we were siding with the Taliban against the Afghan government, and I would and I would hear these complaints about, you know, Ashraf Ghani, who we both know very well, and I would just say, okay, do you prefer Haibatullah Akhundzada? I mean, <laughs> really? So, so uh, I think that was what was most disheartening for, for me, and uh, it's going to take me a while, to, obviously, to get o- to get over this. But, uh, but of course, the Afghans are really the ones bearing the brunt of the of the consequences. Uh, you know, what do you think we uh, we should be doing now? Uh, in terms of what we've learned from everything we've discussed. And this might be a kind of the wrap up uh, conversation here. We've seen you know, the first major war in Europe since World War II. We've seen increasingly aggressive China. I mean, from bludgeoning Indian soldiers to death in the Himalayan frontier to trying to own the ocean in the South China Sea to threatening Taiwan. Uh, we see us really uh, partnerships weakening with critical, reliable partners in Saudi Arabia and the, em- and the Emiratis and the Chinese and the Extending their influence into the region, this, this peace deal between, you know, or, or not peace deal really, it's really a reestablishment of of, of relationship, um, rapprochement between you know between uh, uh, Iran and and Saudi Arabia. Uh, you know, what, what can we learn from these recent experiences? But what can we do about it? What should we be prioritizing now? We being you know the United States, the UK, Europe, Japan, uh, Australia, like like minded countries. Yes.
2: I mean, I um, I mean, I think that um, you'll recall George Kennan and that George Kennan moment when he sent the long telegram back in 1947 to the State Department from Moscow, um, making the point that he didn't think we would be able to live in peaceful coexistence with the Soviet Union in, in the direction it was going. And of course, that led to the Truman Doctrine and the Truman Doctrine became a bipartisan doctrine. And of course, we all as NATO allies got in behind it. And of course, you know, history would judge that it was very successful. Uh, as the Cold War came to an end at the end of the 1980s. Um, and I think in a way we, we almost need another moment where we uh, recognise the nature of the problem and as a collective group of like-minded nations we work out what the strategy should be to deal with the problem. And of course, you're. I mean, it's very dangerous to use class fits twice in a conversation,
0: but I am going to use them again. Hey, what do you expect from washed-up generals? Right? <laughs> I mean, this is as my daughter would say, hashtag predictable. Yeah, but I think one of the things
2: he did say was that the first um, requirement on a on a leader or a commander is to work out what sort of war he's going to. You're going to prosecute. Now, I'm not suggesting we're going to war. I, I hasten to add, and we've got to do everything we can to avoid that happening. But we need to work out what it is the problem and what we're going to do to solve that problem collectively. And my bet is that's going to require strategy. And strategy is a word that policymakers don't necessarily like having thrown in their faces at the moment. And I think it requires us to recognize that so much of the challenge we're up against is a technological challenge. And what China is doing to the world is deliberately putting its technology throughout the world. And then what will follow from its technology Will be its ideology, and that is the challenge that we're up against. Um, and the, the reality is that people are opening their arms to Chinese technology because it comes with not many strings attached. You know, this sort of so-called—it's
0: a great—it's a, gra- so- a great deal, right? It is, it's a great
2: <laughs> deal. And, you know, and uh, and you know, you probably know this. Um, Beidu, which is their equivalent of of GPS, means the Big Dipper. You know, it's extraordinarily accurate, uh, and that's the beginning of. A city like Nairobi becoming a smart city using Chinese technology to become that smart city, and pretty quickly surveillance will follow. And what follows with surveillance is the opportunity for governments to behave like authoritarian governments. And these are this is the sort of problem we're up against. And if we if we don't think about how we're going to help others to avoid getting sucked into that technological dilemma, then we've got a problem.
0: Absolutely. I mean, the Philippines essentially did it. Now they're trying to figure out how the hell they get they get you know they they. Uh reduce their their exposure to it. Well, General Nick Carter, I can't thank you enough for helping us learn about Battlegrounds, critical to our future and and hopefully a future of peace and prosperity. And, uh, And it's just wonderful to have you here at Hoover. Great to see you, thank you so much.
2: No, well thanks HR, it's a great privilege to be here and it's wonderful to be back with you.
1: Battlegrounds is a production of the Hoover Institution where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work, To hear more of our podcasts or view our video content, please visit hoover.org.